Well, if you have your Bibles with you this morning, I invite you to turn with me once again to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. This morning we will be considering the first 11 verses. Before we hear the reading and preaching of God's word, join me once again in prayer. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, we come now to your word. We recognize that we can know none of it unless your spirit opens it to our hearts and to our minds. And so, Lord, we pray for that wonderful and glorious work of the spirit to reveal your truth to us, to show us Jesus, to show us our wonderful salvation in you. Oh, Lord, we pray, be at work in and through your word. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Hear now the very word of God written for you and for me today. Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? If then you have judgments concerning things pertaining to this life, do you appoint those who are least esteemed by the church to judge? I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you, not even one, who will be able to judge between his brethren? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. Now, therefore, it is already another failure for you that you go to law against one another. Why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? No, you yourselves do wrong and cheat. You do these things against your brethren. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. But you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Amen. Amen. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. May he who has ears hear, hear the word of God. Well, beloved in Christ, when a church struggles with knowing who they are and what God has called them to be and even what God has called them to do, when the shepherds fail to nurture, to correct, to discipline the body, the effects that these things bring in her peace and her purity and her unity show in a variety of ways. And this confusion came to Corinth and was evident in Corinth messing around with the wisdom of the world. It came with their allowing pride to flourish within them, which 
threatened the church's peace and unity and skewed her understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ, as we have seen in chapters 1 through 4. And in chapter 5, the Apostle Paul taught them and us that their faulty ecclesiology, their faulty knowledge of the doctrine of the church, among other things, and the failure of her people and her shepherds to judge matters biblically, also significantly threatened the purity of the body. And this was true to the point where the congregation had become numb to the presence of sin. Even serious sexual sin in their midst. And further, they moved from being numb to it, in their pride, being puffed up and arrogant about it. They didn't deal with it, and they didn't remove it as they are. And so what did Paul do? He didn't say, that's okay, y'all are doing all right. No, he, he, he rebuked them for their failure to do so. He told them strongly that their glorying about this wasn't good. They clearly didn't see the sin for the filth and the, the poison that it really was. And that poison would infect and defile the whole church if it wasn't removed. And so Paul taught the saints about biblical discipline and the final stage of it, didn't he? He taught them about the need for excommunication. The Corinthians needed to judge the case rightly, apply church censure, and cast the man out so that they would be a new lump, he said in verse 7, a pure body once again. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore, they needed to, and we need to, keep the feast in sincerity and truth, Paul says. And therefore, having judged the matter rightly, the congregation needed to live rightly in light of the judgment and the action that was needed. The relational shift and the change that needs to happen between the saints in the church and the person who is cast out as a result of the discipline of excommunication is understandably and predictably hard and difficult. For we aren't to keep company with them, Paul says. Nor are we to have table fellowship with them, Paul taught us. And yet we are to pray for them. We are to talk to them about the Lord Jesus Christ, to share the glorious gospel with them, that by God's grace they would repent and they would turn to him in true faith and be restored to the fellowship of the church. And as the Corinthians had shied away from judgment in this matter of immorality, they had also done so in other areas, and conflict between them abounded. Things got to the point where they were taking each other into secular courts and lawsuits instead of dealing with matters, even small matters, within the church, seeking counsel and advice within the church courts. And so again, though, though Paul doesn't completely leave the subject of immorality here in chapter 6, he helps teach them about another area of weakness in their doctrine of the church as he speaks more to biblical discipline and due process in the church. And this morning we'll look first at Paul's words about saints being worthy to judge in verses 1 through 3. Their failure in taking believers to secular courts in verses 4 through 8. 
and the unrighteous who have been washed in verses 9 through 11. Look with me here at verse 1 where he begins this discussion about saints being worthy to judge. Notice what he says. Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? My friends, Paul begins our passage with a series of important questions that the Corinthians needed to consider the answers to. And these questions all focus on the saints' failure to judge matters in the church that he began addressing in chapter 4, even regarding himself. Notice how Paul begins his first question. He says, dare any of you, literally, Paul is saying, do any of you have the courage and the boldness to do this? I mean, the clear answer was yes, many did. And Paul wasn't talking about courage or boldness in a good sense here either. The bonds of Christian love have been strained in their unresolved grievances with each other, to the point in which that they were going after each other in heathen courts. And Paul isn't talking about criminal matters here, but he is concerned about lawsuits over small civil matters, rather than continuing to work out their differences biblically within the pale of the church. And this created many problems, one of which was major. And that they were in what they were doing and how they were handling it. And all of this was bringing dishonor to Christ and reproach on the Christian religion. Beloved, know that when conflict turns into deep-seated offense, hard hearts become difficult to soften. When conflict turns into deep-seated offense, hard hearts become difficult to soften. We hear this in Proverbs 18, 19. A brother offended is harder to win than a strong city. And contentions are like the bars of a castle. Hear this, my friends. Harder to win than a strong city. Contentions are like bars of a castle. Is there any hope for, them, for those who are involved? Yes, there is. Yes, there is. As brothers and sisters, there is great hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. He can and he does bring true reconciliation to the hardest offense and the strongest contentions and the most vile of offenders. He softens hearts. He breaks down our pride in ways that no one else can. He does so in ways that no one can, so that resolution that honors him comes to pass, and he receives all the glory. And so if believers in the church have conflicts with each other that, that we can't resolve together, what do we need to do? We don't need to let it fester and, and let things get progressively worse. We shouldn't contend with each other. Why? Because we're brothers and sisters. We must not go after each other. But rather, we need to follow God's prescription for conflict resolution and reconciliation that he provides in his word. We need to follow Matthew 18, which points us to take our conflict before the saints. We must not avoid but we must 
use the means that God has provided through people, through shepherds in the courts of the church to get counsel and resolution. So, beloved, what is the remedy that Paul commends to help the saints better understand this and to curb their willingness to go to heathen courts? Spiritual knowledge. It's insight of the reason and the benefit of bringing our grievances before the church. Paul phrases this in the form of three do-you-not-know questions. As he asks these questions in verses 2, 3, and 9. Look at verse 2. Here's the first. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the saints will be judged, uh, excuse me, if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matter? Do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? So you know, it's likely that many of the Corinthian saints didn't know this. I ask you today, do you know this to be true of yourself? Maybe not. It's true that Jesus will judge the world in righteousness. But if you are a child of God, Scripture teaches us that you will judge the world and angels with Christ. And how do we know that this is true? Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.12, If we endure... We shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. Jesus says in Matthew 19, 28, Assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, notice, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Jude teaches us in Jude 14 and 15, now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to do what? To execute judgment on all. To convict all who are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have committed in an ungodly way. And of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. And further, my friends, regarding what God teaches us about angels, Peter says in 2 Peter 2.4 that God casts the fallen angels down to hell where they are reserved for what? They're reserved for judgment. And Jude says the same thing in Jude 6. And what is true of the devil, the beast, and the false prophet in Revelation chapter 20, verse 10? We read there, the devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are. And there they will be tormented day and night, forever and ever. And so see that Paul makes an important point here to those in Corinth. If we will judge the world and angels when Christ returns and consummates his kingdom, are we unworthy to judge now? The clear answer is no. As we are in Christ, the saints are completely worthy to judge. And so why would we appeal to unbelievers in this life to judge be between Christians? This reality must affect how we look at judgment and discipline and counsel in the church. 
But notice also he speaks then to failure in taking the believers to heathen courts in verse 4. He says, if then you have judgments concerning those things pertaining to this life, do you appoint those who are least esteemed by the church to judge? I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you, not even one who will be able to judge between his brethren, but brother goes to law against brother, and that's before unbelievers. Now, by way of some background, my friends, know that the Greeks were notorious for loving to go to law against each other, even for the smallest of things. It was built into the Corinthian culture amongst other Greek cultures. And so it isn't surprising that the church would face temptation to absorb this approach to settling conflict with each other, as they had absorbed so many other approaches from the culture regarding the ways of this world, and they had led it into the church. And so now thinking about what Paul has just taught them and seeing judgment and biblical church discipline through this new lens, he asks the same question from an educated angle. Since they should rightly judge, why would they go to the heathen, who are, who are those who are least esteemed by the church? Why would they go to, him, to them to judge? Was there no wise man among them? Not even one? Have they even considered this? Have they... Have they even thought about that? Did it cross their minds? Had they looked and had they searched and had they said, nope, we can't find one? No. They ran too quickly. They were lured quickly to the ways of the world by the world. And so their failure in not judging matters themselves and and having the heathen judge them, was it was shameful. Remember in chapter 1, verse 30, Paul said that the believers were to shame the wise and the strong of the world with the quality of their community lives. But here they are, doing what they're doing. Paul said that it, it wasn't only that it was shameful, but their actions showed utter failure to do what they ought. Look at verse 7. Now, therefore, it is already an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another. Why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourself be cheated? My friends, Paul calls the saints, calls us here today to be willing to suffer wrong for the sake of Christ, for the sake of the body, instead of to see an injustice righted immediately but to the ruin of the testimony of the church. Keep in mind that, that Paul taught the saints previously regarding their judgment and Christ's judgment on Judgment Day, when all wrongs will be made right. The people needed to be patient about many things. And yet did the saints accept wrong? Did they let themselves be cheated? No, they didn't. He says that in verse 8. No, you yourselves do wrong and cheat, and you do these things to your brethren. How dare you? What are you thinking? What are you doing? This isn't the first time that Paul has said that type of thing to them. What are you thinking? Again, 
Shame and failure abounded as they sinned against each other. You know, my friends, they, they may have won their lawsuits, but they lost big time. They failed in being and doing what Christ called them to in the church. Their public and legal scandals were tearing the unity of the church apart. And so Paul goes on to ask his third and important, do you not know? Look at verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Now, now why would Paul ask this question? Many in the congregation were acting like the unrighteous. He wanted to highlight the scandals in the church. And Paul also made the contrast to call believers in the body to repent of their sins, especially those that he addressed in chapters 5 and 6. And Paul is right. Those who show themselves to be unbelievers by their unrepentant living in sin won't inherit Christ's kingdom, period. And before he gives Corinth a list of unrighteousness, note the warning that he begins with in 9b. He says, do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. So we consider all of this and we see how Paul circles back now to immorality among all of these other heinous sins. And what did he warn them about? He warned them about the danger of deception, of blindness, and the consequences that come with being deceived. Don't be deceived. So here's the truth. Don't be deceived. His message to them was, you can't see it, but the presence and the practice of these sins in your lives and them being tolerated in your midst is evidence that you have been deceived. You've been fooled. You've been duped. Literally, you have been led astray and caused to wander. And notice also that Paul doesn't let anyone off the hook here. All sin is sin. Whether it be heterosexual fornication, idolatry, adultery, theft, drunkenness, verbal abusing and railing against others, same-sex attraction or homosexual sin, sin is sin. Why would they let it go on in their midst? Don't be deceived, brothers. How many churches today can we see have the wool over their eyes? Clearly, walking around with blindness. How many churches today do we see where these sins on this very list, among others, are allowed, are encouraged, are rampant and healthy in their midst? And yet they think it's all okay, it's good even. No. Sin is sin. Get it out. Don't be deceived. And yet as we've seen, many 
had been led astray to believe that people living in such sin in Corinth were fine with God. What God declared to be sin wasn't truly sinful. They, they had the inside scoop. They knew what was going on. The wisdom of the world told them different. They were deceived to defend and to welcome it and, and such things as sin, rather than to expel it from their presence. The case of incest in their midst was a good example of this. They didn't excommunicate the man. They didn't discipline him because they had become puffed up. They accepted it. There was no need for concern in their mind. Everyone's okay. We're all going to heaven. These sins aren't hurting anyone. We're still in God's favor. They would still receive the inheritance of God's kingdom, though being apart from Christ was what they believed. But this is why Paul goes on to say in verse 11, and quite clearly, but such were some of you. Such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. But, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Paul's message to the Corinthians, beloved, was some of you lived in heinous sin and you loved it. You loved it. Yet stop wandering. Stop playing around with this again. Wake up! And live according to who you've been redeemed to be, not who you used to be. Beloved, how much do we wrestle with this in this life? The lure of who we used to be. The trap of who we used to be. The shame that it brings to Christ, the one who redeemed us, because we want to go back and wear the other, the other army's uniform. Who are we? We are the redeemed of God. We are the holy ones of Christ. We are the church. Pure. And united. Beloved, how glorious a change saving grace makes. Christ changes the vilest, the, the most wretched of men and makes us the children of God. And Paul knew this well, didn't he? He ministered from a heart and a life of experience. He remembered who he used to be. He was a zealous member of the pressing and assaulting world against the people of God until Christ made him one of them. Until Christ opened his eyes and changed his heart and brought him into the church. And now he's a zealous warrior and a shepherd for Christ. Beloved, see what Paul lays out here. It's, it's beautiful. What is true as God pursues and redeems and radically changes his children, when he transforms us? Three things, Paul says, that really show forth the gospel. And notice, Paul includes himself in this. We were washed. Such 
was true for some of you. But that's in the past because you were washed. <clears throat> My friends, if you're trusting in Christ, if you belong to Him, you've been cleansed from sin by the blood of Christ. Psalm 51, verse 2 says, We were sanctified. We were declared to be holy and set apart by God unto God. 1 Corinthians 1, 2. We were justified. We were declared righteous by God in the name of Christ and by His Spirit. Romans 2.13 These are acts done by the living God to His people. These weren't things that we did. Christ did them to us. He washed us. He sanctified justified us. Praise the Lord. We're not who we used to be. Yes, thank you, Jesus. I'm not who I used to be. I wrestle with who I used to be. Thank you, you. We're on. Yet that's not who we are. This is exactly what the saints in Corinth needed to hear as the blinders were being pulled back and removed as as Christ's light shone in their darkness. And this is what we need to hear as well. And so I ask you, are you nursing sin in your heart? If so, repent. Repent today. Turn from them all. And turn unto Christ. Deal with your sin promptly. Don't delay. I'll leave you with this. See Jesus and his work for his people afresh this morning. Remember who you were and who you are because of him. We were cheaters and wrongdoers, just like Corinth. We were the vile offenders on Paul's list. We were like the Greeks who would be happy to sue the pants off of our brothers and sisters in the world's courts over the smallest matter. But who are you now? As was true with Corinth, it's so important that our knowledge of the cleansing and justifying and sanctifying work of Christ in us changes how we live. Having your eyes open to the truth of this text should change how you live. That our understanding of God's teaching of the doctrine of the church is strong and and well applied to how we think and walk together as his body as well. For as we know who we are and, and what he has called us to do by God's grace, we will see clearly what we must do and what we must do that is right and good to keep the body pure and united. We will see the command and the importance of exercising Biblical, godly judgment and enacting church discipline. We will seek and provide godly counsel for those who are in the, in the family of God. And we will deal with family matters, especially the, the small conflicts, within the church. Biblically utilizing the church courts and not bring scandal to Christ or his body by going to those who are on the outside.
Praise God for his word. Praise God for the wonder and the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. 